Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. Well, the first podcast audio issue happened, and this is the raw, raw version of the podcast. So there's awkward pauses, and it's really quiet. That is the best I can do. And it is what it is. I don't have all control. So this is Lisa's story and it is the best that it can be audio wise, but it is a crazy story. So I hope you enjoy her wild, wild journey. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm Lisa, a stay at homestead mom to five children, five years and under. I was an army medic for 10 years. And so far, I've been a veteran for two. Steve and I have been married for seven years and we live off grid in a tiny house. My big three are Aries Sun, Taurus Moon, and Cancer Rising. The essence of my soul, my soul, which I discovered thanks to a psychedelic journey, is joy. I was not deeply spiritually conscious on my journey from maiden to mother, but I am now, and I hope the lessons of my life so far can help someone else. I met my husband in 2014. And I now know he was the one. I didn't believe it because <laughs> I didn't like him when we first met. He, we met um, at a jiu-jitsu gym because I was, I was National Guard at the time. I wasn't active duty yet. And so I went to jiu-jitsu for some self-defense and some better physical training. And he was, he was a competitor and a competition trainer. So he was like the, the uber-masculine asshole. Like he, he knew he could take you or take anybody. And he did. Um, so I did not like that tough guy persona. I didn't like the space he was in, but he was a legit trainer. So he and I started personal training. Um, and when we met, I heard, you know, then I thought it was the voice of God, but now I know it was my intuition and I saw him and that, that voice said, that guy is your husband. Yeah. So, and, um, I've heard that voice before and anyway, but yeah. <laughs> and he left town for work cause it was just a small, a small little cow town. And he moved there to be with family. Then he moved back to the big city. And two years later when he came back was when we started dating and he had mellowed out a bunch. And we started personal training again because he wanted to start a women's self-defense class and he trained me up to be his uh female co-instructor so that's how yeah that's how we really started getting to know each other and then it went from 
really intense training to dating. And the night that I knew he was the one, we were just uh, laying with each other talking. And I said, oh, yeah, I want a family and a farm. And he said, yeah, I want a big family and a farm. And that was it. Yeah. And that was the moment. And then I told him, like, hey, I'm in Pennsylvania now. Um, and he knew I was in the National Guard. He knew I was military. He was very used to working with military and training. So it was a pretty natural fit. And he was just like, when I told him I was going active duty, it didn't phase him at all. And he moved down to North Carolina with me. And it took him a, a couple weeks of a gap. And so, but the day that he helped me move down there was the day when I heard that voice of intuition speak again, but I ignored it. Uh, the, the voice told me we were in the car outside of reception and that voice said, take him in the building with you. And I was so nervous because it was a, a military installation. And I was like, we're not married yet. I'm not taking my boyfriend in into this like official building to do official paperwork. Like that's, that's not professional. And um, that reception desk was where I met the, the woman that I had the affair with. Yeah. So... <laughs> And um, so that, that was crazy. We got to know each other as friends over those two to three weeks. Um, and she was a lesbian. I was bisexual. And it just never occurred to me that I would meet a woman that I would fall so deeply in love with. And it took, it, it took two years from the time I met her. Steve and I got married and then we separated because that internal struggle of him or her was so strong. And it really was like, do I choose this life of adventure and romance or do I choose this life that I know is going to be a struggle? It's going to be the family and the farm that he and I had originally wanted. And one of my core things that I knew about myself, which was the reason I knew I wanted to marry a, a man over a woman in the first place was that I am in this life as a woman with a womb and I wanted children so deeply. And I feel like that's one of my purposes here. So for me to fall in love with a woman and see her as a potential partner to raise children with, that was a dark, that was a dark night of the soul. I was raised in a very conservative Christian community and I had come out to my friends about being bisexual, but I had never come out to my family about it because it, it wasn't anything that I would have taken seriously until, you know, I was married, my family was at my wedding and then here I am two or three months later, I'm leaving my husband for a woman. And, um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so that was, that was, it wasn't my first like dark night of the soul, but it was a, a majorly defining one. And I don't think I had anything else in here. I wanted to say about that. If you had any questions. Yeah. I, I want to know 
okay, because the voice of the intuition was like, take him inside the building. And so that's telling me you had a choice. You didn't have to meet this woman and go through this insane battle, this insane struggle. Like we always have these choices, but there's like a natural consequence in a way to not listening to God or intuition, whatever word people use. There's like a natural consequence to not listening to what we know is right. And it's like you lived that. Yeah. That's a perfect Wow. Yeah, that's a perfect way to say it. Yeah, and I want you to touch on what you were telling me at one time about perhaps maybe why you're bisexual, maybe that childhood trauma stuff, and then just what you learned about the affair. Like how did how did that ultimately help you and your husband, even though it was, you know, such a hard thing? Yeah. So the, it's when it comes down to the sexuality discussion, because I lost my father first to divorce. He, my biological father and my mom divorced. So, and my early childhood memories with him are very traumatic Um, There was a lot of fighting in the home growing up. So I was very averse to men from the start because of that. And then my mom remarried. And I also, I didn't like this man either, (laughs) but he tried, he tried really hard. He was our um, sports coaches. Like he tried to get us into athletics and really bond with us. He put a lot of effort in, but then he passed away when I was in fifth grade. So I went from, losing a biological father who was like just this scary guy to gaining a stepfather who was also very scary but he had that balance of I'm scary but I'm here and I will take care of you and that voice of intuition kicked in very early in my life because I saw my mom crying on the porch um drinking drinking one night and that voice to me said you have to take care of yourself and that was, you know, I don't know how old fifth grade is, but that was when I heard that voice and knew that. And that's that from that point on, I started stepping into my masculine and I started feeling so protective of my sisters and so protective of my mother. And somewhere in the preteen stage, you know, where hormones, puberty kicks in, um, and sex starts happening around you, like in public school, and it comes into comes into awareness. I think the feeling protective of women and wanting to feel so precious and wanting to feel protected, it just made a transition into loving women and wanting to care for them. Um, so it, it very well could have been a trauma response from, wow, all the women around me need love and need protection. And I can do that because that voice in my head when I was young said, I have to take care of myself. Well, that also means I have to take care of my vulnerable siblings and yeah, just the feelings of needing to protect someone and keep them safe just turned into feelings of, well, I also love other, you know, other women and um, yeah, humans deserve love. And it, even though I grew up in a Christian community, I personally never put myself in that shame of loving anybody or feeling the way that I felt about them. 
but because I had that innate desire to have children, I also never saw myself getting into a conflict of, oh, am I going to end up with a man or a woman? I never questioned that because I always wanted to raise children with a strong masculine presence because it's what I never had. Yeah, but you also had to, you also had to kind of reckon with that the masculine has hurt you. You felt so unsafe with the masculine, which is why you had to take care of yourself from such a young age, protect yourself from the masculine, which is so many women, right? Most women create this masculine shield around ourselves and we are hyper independent and hyper um, controlling to try to keep ourselves safe from the masculine, which hurt us at a young age. This is most women. And it manifests in different ways. Like in, in you, it could be it could have manifested in in being bisexual, which if have you looked into German new medicine with oh, this? Yeah topic i have okay i have looked into it um because it you know it ties the physical and the spiritual but i never thought about applying german new medicine to sexuality yeah it, it covers it actually oh, wow and yeah. it covers yeah it covers um trauma as a child in men they become this forever peter pan where they literally cannot commit because they are like an eight-year-old boy and so it explains like the Peter Pan syndrome of the forever young little boy that the man that will not commit. It, it is so cool. And then there's also the, the hyper hypersexual man, the Casanova syndrome or something like that, where it's a trauma from the childhood where their brain is altered and they are now different. But all of our trauma, you know, manifests in different ways. Yours maybe with being bisexual and then mine with my father abandonment wounds is I have the masculine shield as a woman too hyper controlling hyper critical so independent right and that's what I've been shedding for the past few years it's so many of us women have this story it's so cool that we have awoken to how deeply unsafe we feel in this world in our body with men and like your love story with your husband you were literally repelled by him because he was so hyper-masculine. You're like, no, 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 this is not for me. And once he mellowed out, you're like, oh, now it's safe. <laughs> now it's safe. Yeah. But but for me, my abandonment father wounds, because I lost my father at age 12, tragically, um, it has manifested into needing this validation from men for my self-worth because I, I like lost it. My father left me, you know, not by choice, but he still did. And so I, I have learned and I have an episode called episode number two of my podcast is called when you have a crush that is not your spouse, because I find my husband's friend very attractive. Like I am attracted to him and there's a difference. There's a huge difference between just being like, oh, that person's attractive and being attracted because you have different thoughts and you want to act differently around this person. And so that episode of my podcast covers this topic of when you are attracted to someone, it literally is this mirror and it flushes up all these wounds from your past. So me finding my husband's friend attractive 
was the flashlight onto my abandonment father wounds and how badly I needed and wanted validation from this one random guy that I was attracted to, even though I was like, I am happily married, but just when we are attracted to someone, it, it's like this brings up this cycle from childhood and it's an opportunity to learn about yourself. It's an opportunity to look at the gaping wound that they show you. It's, 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 um, it's an amazing opportunity. And I love that your intuition was like, yeah, bring, bring your man into the building because you could bypass this (laughs) (laughs) or you can live through it. You have the free will and you, and you lived through it. So is there anything else you want to talk about what you learned? Because you said you and your husband still talk about that time in your life. So yeah, because it's it, it brings up his his deep wounding of because he was abandoned as a child um, of his not feeling good enough. But as far as the um, the struggle that I somehow intuitively chose itself, the challenge was to conquer my hypersexuality. You know, my female Casanova syndrome, whatever that was, and I knew going into this marriage that if you know subconsciously. I knew going into this marriage that if I did not work through the hypersexuality um, that I now recognize as wounding, but then I thought it was just me. I thought I was this, yeah, um, and I thought I was just this uncontrollable sexual energy force, you know, like young, beautiful woman, super athletic, very in my masculine, therefore very attractive to men. Um, I thought that was just me, and I thought I was never going to change. And it's so, it's taken me so many years to integrate and unpack that, holy crap, I was seeking validation and I used my body to do it. And yeah, so now I have to validate, I'm working on validating myself because I do still seek that validation from my spouse. And ultimately it has to come from within. So I've, I've gone from seeking validation externally from seeking it from my husband to now I'm just trying to uh, be at peace with myself. So that, yeah, that's so, that's so well put because I want to reference this thing. My therapist said when I, when I went to therapy many years ago and I was talking to her about this guy that I found attractive, she's like, you have a, just imagine yourself as a bucket and you have childhood wounds. And so there's holes in your bucket you know, you want validation from this random guy. Oh, you want validation from your career. Oh, you want validation from your husband. That's an input into your bucket, but it's never enough because there's a hole in your bucket. So if, if someone goes and has the affair, they're trying to put all that validation in their bucket. There's many reasons why people have affairs, but we're talking about this specific wounding of, um, of, feeling like not worthy enough and you need that validation from that external source to feel good enough, worthy enough, you're special enough. And an affair can be put into your bucket, but it's going to blow up. It's going to crumble because you have a hole in your bucket and the honeymoon phase will end and it will never be enough because even if you end up with an affair, the affair person, and they tell you how beautiful you are every day or how magical you are. It's not enough because you have a hole in the bucket. And we have to learn how to patch that hole. And I don't know if it like ever really fully gets patched, but it's just like this mothering process that 
we become the mother to our own selves instead of seeking all these like cookie crumbs to try to fill our bucket that isn't sustainable. It doesn't last. And we eventually learn it through all the mistakes. <laughs> Shoot. That put me in mind of something I wanted to say. Okay. So um, I guess we'll just get to the conclusion of the affair, which, which ultimately from me meeting her to me choosing my spouse took two years. It was just a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking a lot of, a lot of trauma and it, me going back to my original, I want, I want children with a man is what brought me back to my husband. And it just took, it took two years of each of us choosing each other over and over and over again. And, um, so we had, we had separated because we thought it was over and we met back up. My mom invited him to Thanksgiving. My mom invited him to family Thanksgiving and I was at Fort Bragg. She knew I was driving up and my mom technically got us back together because we hung out at family Thanksgiving and we're like, all right, let's, let's try again. <laughs> and I was down at Fort Bragg choosing my masculine over and over again. You know, I was getting ready for um, pre-deployments. I was getting ready for trainings. I was in a very fast paced unit. So I was choosing my masculine over and over again. And um, yeah, mom got me and Steve back together. We started dating again. We hadn't even moved back in together or anything because after that kind of hurt, you still need, you still need so much space and you still need so much like clearing and cleansing before you can even come back together. And we would drive halfway or one of us would drive the full way. Like every other weekend we would see each other. And we both knew when we got married that children would happen when they were supposed to happen. And I got pregnant when I was doing uh, pre-deployment physicals. My unit was coming up yeah, on rotation. You have to be qualified before you can even deploy and before you can do certain medical train or certain get trainings. And I was getting a pregnancy test for a physical and they give you a bunch of shots. And I was early pregnancy, but did not test positive yet. I literally had a dream the night before that there was a baby in my belly. So I got this negative pregnancy test and I was like, I'm just crazy. I'm just fiending for a baby because Steve and I were dating again. And, you know, we were doing all the romantic things, Airbnb every weekend, going hiking at all these national parks. And our, our last meetup, we were picking out baby clothes. We were like, hey, what if we get pregnant soon? Yeah. And I tested negative. And then they had to test me again the next week because I was at a shooting range trying to qualify. And I broke out in anaphylaxis, had to go to the ER and everything. And they pregnancy test you at the ER and I was pregnant like a week later. Yeah. <laughs> wow. How, so this was five, six years ago, six years ago. My oldest, he's a November baby. He turned five this past November. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in the military mm -hmm with this pregnancy yeah. how wait how many pregnancies are you in the military for three out of four okay yep okay yeah i want to hear about it it's wild um 
okay, so we find out we're pregnant and we take, we take a couple weeks to even like get back together and move back in together. I think we finally moved back in together when I'm like 20 weeks pregnant. And then my mom passes away when I'm 28 weeks pregnant. Yeah. So it just, it just goes from being this crazy life thing to this other crazy life thing. And my mom passes away and the rest of the pregnancy is just a blur, like mentally, emotionally, I'm checked out. I'm just existing and that's it. And let's see. So then I got a bunch of, bunch of pregnancy left in the army. It's exhausting. We're working from 6.30 AM to 6.30 PM. My pregnancy goes to 39 weeks and then they schedule an induction it was my first birth, so they had it scheduled on the day of my 42nd week. They were going to let me go to 42. And I woke up the morning of my 41st week yeah, on a, on a Monday morning, and I felt a trickle. So I went to the ER to get checked out, and that started the entire cascade of intervention. Yeah, so it was um, the labor for an induced labor, I really think it's torture. It's they, they break your waters. So you have no pressure for contractions. They put you on all this Pitocin and they say, oh, it's fine. You'll get an epidural. You're not going to feel a thing. And then the epidural is very hit or miss. Um, I couldn't have an epidural because it was making my oldest heart rate go up, you know, whatever excuse they need here. And it, by the end of 10 hours of induced labor, Pitocin, contractions, I was begging for a C-section. And that was such a huge ego break for me because I knew, I knew my body could produce a child. My, I'm the oldest of six. My mom had six natural, unmedicated, non-induced labors. And that was a core truth that I held about myself was I can get pregnant and I can birth my children. And for me to then be begging for a C-section was a huge just break to my ego. Um, and so they put me under for the C-section. I have no recollection of everything. My husband watches the C-section and then grabs the baby. They just throw that, they just give the baby to him. And he had meconium, so it looked like a scary green explosion of goo and poo and blood. And he, which he didn't tell me for years because he had to unpack the trauma of seeing my stomach like ripped open. Yeah. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't process anything more than my side of the trauma, you know, for so long that he never even got to tell me his side of the story. Um, I have a question. Yes. At that time, did you have any idea that the contractions you were feeling with Pitocin and the fact that the they broke your water, that you were feeling and experiencing something very unnatural because Pitocin contractions are extremely unnatural, right? And so you have this huge ego hit of, oh my gosh, I can't even handle childbirth. But at the time you didn't understand that that is an incredible, insane thing to have Pitocin contractions without an epidural. Yeah. I like, yeah, that caused the ego break. I didn't know it was unnatural because after losing my mom, 
I quit all childbirth education that I was putting myself, I just stopped. I was <laughs> not even interested in learning more about this process because it's going to happen and the baby's going to come out. And my mom did it six times, so I can't. <laughs> and I just, I was in that state of oh, deep, deep trust in my body that, yeah, I can do this. But also I just wasn't paying attention to anything because I was just trying to go to work and not cry my eyes out the whole time. Like I came back from the funeral and my unit asked me if I wanted a baby shower and I was so depressed. I said, I don't know. And so they didn't throw me one. And if you consider that these people are supposed to be closer than your family, these are people that you train with, eat with, sleep with, and you potentially could die with. And for them to just shut down and not consider your needs and be like, Oh, well, she's depressed. So don't talk to her right now. It was very foreign to me because you do get so close with your unit. It was a huge, it was a huge betrayal. You know, me coming back from losing my mother pregnant and depressed and just being so shunned. Yeah. So that, that made it so much worse because I've, when you are in the military like that, you do have really high expectations of your, um, comp whoever you work with. Wow. So how was that first postpartum? Um, for the first couple weeks because of the C-section, um, I forget what drug it was, but I was pretty doped up. <laughs> so it was a blur. Um, it was a blur. We had family come in later and it was my family in law, which we're now no contact with because they trigger my husband's trauma. So I was trying to come off of pain medication. My husband was in a state of constantly triggered, but not in a mental emotional state where he could discuss it or properly feel it or um, clear it. So there was so much weird energy. My first postpartum. And after the family left, um, I knew I was going to have to go back to work pretty quickly at three months. They have you go back to work. So I just started trying to get in shape. I started doing push-ups, planks, running, anything I could to get back in, in duty shape. So it was very, it was very focused on me and I tried breastfeeding my boy, but I knew that I was going to have to pump. So we tried getting into a good rhythm of feeding and bonding and pumping and him and Steve bonding over the bottle. Cause we had to, we had to have him hybrid pretty much immediately. So that, yeah, that first postpartum was rough. <laughs> so then going back to work with a child, like I said, that was a high demand unit. We had, we had a field problem like immediately um, that, that's just, that's a common name for it. Field problem, field exercise, FX. So we had an exercise a week or two after I got back to work and it, we started at like 4am and we got out to a field and set up and did everything by noon. And I went to do my first field exercise pump session. And there were several of us mothers in the unit that were postpartum and pumping and trying to figure all this stuff out. I was an evacuation medic. So I had access to an ambulance and everybody was in a centralized area eating lunch. So I told everybody, Hey, I'm going to pump in this ambulance. Don't let anybody come over here. So yeah, you can see where this is going. I 
get in there, I get set up, uh, topless, pumping, and then the ambulance doors just fling wide open. The one person who did not hear me say in front of the entire group, because I didn't want this to happen, and I didn't care if it was embarrassing that I was pumping in the field, I wanted everybody to know, hey, I'm pumping in this ambulance. The one person that did not hear me throws the doors wide open. And it's in a parking lot situation. If you can imagine how that setup is, people are kind of just sprinkled throughout. It's not like a huge crowd or anything, but we just look at each other being a soldier and we're like, Oh fuck. So he shuts the doors and I put my top on and I chew him out so badly. I get in trouble. (laughs) And then they, they calm down and listen to my side of the story for a little bit. And then I get sent home for 24 hours to deal with it. They let me go see a counselor. The counselor says to me, this is the most insulting part of the whole thing. He says to me, well, think about Mardi Gras where women show their breasts all the time. Yeah. And, um, I was just like, wow, that's not what I needed to hear at all. And then I go back to the field for like six or seven more days and, um, just try and navigate and it's it's just so very awkward because everyone knows what happened but nobody wants to talk about it and they sent me home for 24 hours to deal with it and they were they were jealous that I got to leave you know which I don't blame them but it's like I'm going home to deal with some trauma be back soon like and um yeah so that also ruined everything (laughs) I was at work with postpartum depression on top of embarrassment. I didn't know what to do. It was an accident, but I still felt so violated. And, um, that, that one took a long time to integrate because I was just at work crying and I never really came to a resolution of what happened with the people there because I transferred, um, to be closer to family. So we get to the transfer And then COVID starts. So we have a, we get there and then we have a miscarriage at six months postpartum, a chemical miscarriage. It, uh, we acknowledged that it happened, but we weren't, we weren't really in a state of like, oh, well, this, this means we'll never get pregnant again. Or, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't far along. So we, we grieved the event, but we didn't feel like we had to grieve a soul or like a loss of a soul. Um, and then we ended up getting pregnant with my daughter at 12 months and COVID was in full swing uh, with the army. And at, at this duty station, I worked in a medical station. Um, just a lot. Think of like just a regular doctor's office, but huge. And they, nothing, it wasn't anything crazy. It was like masking distance vaccines weren't out yet. So they weren't going crazy on the vaccines. Testing was out. So that was one of our medic duties was test everybody. Um, so technically I was pregnant working a high risk, high exposure job. And eventually that was deemed unacceptable. So they sent me home at 28 weeks pregnant and I was supposed to telework at 28 weeks pregnant. So we have a really smooth third trimester. Um, 
in in the midst of all the chaos we bought land up here because we knew we were getting transferred up here so we bought land so my third trimester actually i spent doing a lot of um, camping and preparing the land and just really getting to know where we were gonna settle down after our time in the military because we were very done after the way that they handled me getting exposed breastfeeding in the field and then all the COVID nonsense they were trying to push. We knew that this was my last contract and there was no way we were going to stay in. So when I got all this time off on my third trimester, we were very thankful for it. And we took a lot of time as a family to come up here and connect with our future home. And then do you just want me to get into the third or the second? Well, what was your, what was your, plan going into the second birth was it a scheduled c-section were you going for v-back oh right yeah so planning for the second birth even with the covid crazies my husband was 100 percent non-covid compliant right he would try and come to appointments with me he wouldn't wear a mask in the hospital he did not get kicked out until that third trimester when things had gotten more serious so we hired a doula who was okay with laboring with me at the house until it was time to go to a hospital and she was comfortable coming to the house and not wearing a mask and transporting me and then Steve would go pick me and the baby up whenever we had the baby so we had this this heavy knowing of if we did end up at the hospital that he wouldn't be there for me and I hadn't really discovered free birth yet. I hadn't thought of personally birthing at home because of military regulation. Um, when you're a soldier, you are a piece of army equipment and it, your life is their property. So I could not technically, legally, safely have a home birth. And then when you have a child, they're responsible for that child's life too because it's your dependent and the kids on their insurance and all these things. So I did not have the wherewithal yet to say, no, it's safe. I am birthing my child at home. I, in my own authority can make this choice. I did not stand up in that way yet, but I knew enough to hire a doula to help get me through labor this time. I wasn't very spiritual for my second pregnancy or my second labor. Um, I didn't even do a lot of reading except for to understand what happened to me was the cascade of intervention. So my preparation for my second labor was to integrate my first birth and understand how to manage labor and avoid the cascade of intervention. So there was nothing spiritual about my second pregnancy or delivery um, other than just trust again, trust in my body because I, I know that I can do it. And my second labor was so much shorter. It started at 3 a.m. And we made some coffee and went for a walk around the block. And labor was getting pretty serious. So we called the doula. And she she gets there and hangs out for like half an hour. And she's I start grunting. And she's like, you're in transition. I was like, what? No. I just, and my water didn't break yet. And yeah. 
And I didn't know that your water can break whenever it doesn't break at the start of labor. And I thought my water didn't break yet. I can't be in transition already because it was like 6 a.m. So from 3 a.m. waking up with my contractions to walking around the block and having coffee and our baby is still asleep. So we're like doing stretches and just hanging out. Um, Yeah, we hit transition by 6 and then the doula didn't know what to, she was not a home birth doula right so she's like go get in the bathtub you can labor there maybe it'll slow things down or maybe you'll chill out or whatever and so they call 911 because they're like well maybe you should go to the hospital i don't know and it it's it's just a freaking circus they call the doula calls 911 because steve and i agree we're like okay well we're not gonna we're not fit for a home birth like it's against the rules let's call 911 so we can play by the army rules so a full ems crew of like four guys was at my house a four a full firefighting crew of like 10 or 12 guys was at my house yeah just waiting for me to push a baby out (laughs) and the i had the paramedic who i knew because medics work with paramedics so at least I knew the guy that was in there that was watching a baby come out of me in the bathtub and my husband was there and then the, it was a very small bathroom. So I had, I had three grown adults and me in the bathtub in this very small bathroom and she was in the back <laughs> calling the head doula like, Hey, I don't know what's going on. Am I allowed to call EMS? Like you should probably know these things if you're going to work with birthing women, but okay. And yeah, so my daughter comes out the call comes out first and my water breaks as she's crowning and um, it's just beautiful and it's perfect. And yeah, having my baby girl in the bathtub was the moment I felt that I personally made that uh, made into mother transition because even though I already had surgically birthed a son, I was still so in my maiden energy and I was still so giving my authority to the army. Um, and even in my pregnancy that I had no faith in myself and I had no sense of authority until I did the thing that I knew I was here to do. And that didn't happen until I birthed my daughter. Yeah. That is so powerful. That shows the power of physiological birth. The way birth, the way nature made birth, to birth the mother, the, what's the word? What's the word? Paramedics. Yeah. I am curious how they handled things. Like, did they want to get their hands on or were they just like, no, let the mother do, do her thing. What were they like? I think my situation was different because they had worked with me. Um, and I lived on military base and most of the people that were medics there were like prior military. So I, they were very hands-off and very respectful with me. And I think that's because they knew that if anything happened, they would have direct accountability. So I cannot speak to medics or paramedics wanting to be hands-on during birth for anybody else as a person that has gone through the training I know that we are supposed to be hands-off. The most a paramedic is supposed to do is coach a mother for pushing, which um, as a person who has pushed is like, please don't tell me what the fuck to do. (laughs) I, I don't know. If you put your hands on a woman 
in labor, you're brave because you're going to get your head snapped off. Like, <laughs> but per their training, they are not supposed to insert. They're not supposed to touch or grope or anything. So, yeah. That, that's why I brought that up because I have a paramedic family member and she has told me that their training is hands off. Mm-hmm. You don't pull the placenta out. Everything is hands off. And how crazy is that? That the hospital training is everything is hands on most of the time. Like almost all of the time it's hands on. And even medical midwives, how hands on they are. They might like be, op- you know, like the cervical lip and having hands in the vagina with the cervical lip and, you know, stretching the perineum and all these things. It's so hands on. But then if a paramedic arrives, oftentimes their training is hands off. That's just wild to me. Yeah. And because of my experience in the military and being trained that way, I only believe in emergency medical services. But uh, because I did that whole first pregnancy in the military in a very like whatever state, I listened to the doctors 100%. And they did the they did cervical checks and I didn't get a membrane sweep with my first one. Um because I want, I, they taught me about a membrane sweep as a way of natural induction, and I didn't want anything to do with it at all. But I, looking back on it, I would have gotten one now as a means of preventing a C-section, and it it won't. It um, I had a membrane sweep even with his pregnancy because it went so far, and it does not guarantee induction of labor. Nothing guarantees induction of labor except for the baby coming when they want to come but it's really about peace of mind whether that action gives you peace of mind and I'm not sure if there's any science to say oh well a membrane sweep hurts the baby um I'm not sure if there's any science about that well there is I'm not going to get the terminology right but there is um oh my gosh I'm gonna wish I'm gonna know this name now but there is a major risk with membrane sweeps because it's the placental veins and arteries Mm -hmm that if they're not in this perfect formation, so if there's some sort of malformation with those veins and arteries arteries of the placenta, a membrane sweep can break one and, and lead to like an abruption. Oh, wow. So yeah, there there is a major, major risk to mm-hmm. membrane sweeps and it's not talked about. No. It's not, and it's not um, presented to women before they get them. A lot of times women are given membrane sweeps without Mm -hmm. consent, but they're not even told the risk of a membrane sweep also. Is your next birth the twin birth? Yeah. And that's- Is it? Yeah. So that birth is why I call it my wild woman birth, because with me coming into my own personal authority with my daughter- I, from then on, I was a a mother and a wild woman. Like you could not tell me anything. (laughs) So this, I knew my, yeah, I knew my twin birth was going to be a whole birth. I knew it was going to be natural and I knew it was going to be fine because everything that happened after COVID and having my daughter, well, and actually not even after having her, after breastfeeding her and Cause I was still, I was in my transition to like fully independent wild woman. I was following the vaccine schedule. She was vaccine injured. And 
we had to take her to the hospital. She was there for about 24 hours because she, within a week of one of her, with her three month shots, she had projectile vomiting and seizures. Yeah. And my husband being stay at home, dad told me that my son was vaccine injured with his nine month shots. And because I was working and I was not the primary caregiver, I didn't believe him. I thought he was being dramatic. I was very like dismissive because I was still so in my masculine, right? It's, it's crazy to think of a woman treating a man the way that mothers are treated all the time. But he told me our baby is hurt. And I was like, you're being crazy. I'm going to, I'm still taking him to his appointments. And I did not believe him until my little girl, my little girl was vaccine injured and she had to go to the hospital. Well, and knowing everything I know now, um, I don't, I would not take my child to a hospital. Um, cause it wasn't, it was just very scary and I didn't know so when her, she projectile vomited and then her eyes rolled back in her head and her body relaxed and she just like flopped and it, yeah, she just stayed flopped for like 30 seconds. And I was like, Oh my God, she's choking. And then she just, yeah. And her eyes just kept rolling back. So I was like hospital now. And they, they poked and prodded her and they gave her a medical transport to a children's hospital and all the tests came back inconclusive, you know, as, as they oftentimes will with vaccine damage, because they're not going to blame, they're not going to blame the vaccine. And they discharged her with a diagnosis of B-U-N-E, Booney, brief, unexplained neurologic event. Yeah, that's what they call it. And they say that infants get them. What? Yeah. They say that infants get them because their brains are not fully developed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they, they scanned her, they took blood samples every like three or four hours. And that was all they came back with was, well, it was brief unexplained neurologic event. It's not going to happen again. And I now know that to be her body. Yeah. Trying to detox the poison that I just put into her, that I allowed to be put into her. And, um, that was, yeah, that was another major bump forward into the fuck the system Lisa (laughs) like I know yeah so I had never looked into it so what was that journey like did you know it was from the vaccine and then you're like f this my husband did that that was me listening to my spouse he never received shots and he never trusted them and from me being in the military I had been so conditioned like it's fine Everybody does this. Everybody's children takes the shots. I, I, growing up, even though it was in the country, had never met anybody who hadn't received um, immunizations. So that wasn't even on my scope growing up holistically with, oh, there's kids out there that don't need to get their shots because I was public school kid. So we're conditioned from so early on. And he was unschooled from the age of like 12 or 13. He was so overshot and he had to take care of my son, vaccine injured, without my support, physically, mentally, or emotionally. And I didn't give a damn until it affected my sweet baby girl. And then, and then I was like, okay, you're right. We'll look into this. (laughs) Wait, this is the protect the feminine. 
Mm-hmm. Your yeah. baby girl. I know. Your baby feminine energy was hurt. Yeah. And that's when you led that charge. And you're like, what can we do about this? That is crazy. Yeah. And he was in his masculine. He was trying to protect the family. And I just wasn't, I wasn't on board because I was so aligned with the military and instead of aligned with my spouse yet. So you were brainwashed. You were in your brainwashing. You were, you were the military's robot. You were the society robot. Yeah. And your spouse is trying to get you to wake up and you needed your own time and your own wake up. And that's what's hard about being married sometimes is we all wake up at different times and that can be hard. So then um, full force, crunchy mom, That's that starts it. We're looking at all natural everything. Yeah. And um, so that just really started that journey. And we were getting close to my separation from the military because we, we knew we weren't going to stay it anymore, right? And then we get pregnant. And we're like, okay, this is not a big deal. We know we can birth at home. So we're going to get out of the military and birth a single baby and a crappy apartment because we don't have a house on our land yet and we'll be fine. And so we're, we're moving into this apartment because COVID is still in full swing. My spouse has gone full, full on stir crazy. He can't handle living on a military base anymore. So he's going to live at the apartment and his mom's going to watch the kids and he's going to settle the land and build our house. And we're moving in one weekend and I start bleeding and we knew I was pregnant. So obviously we thought I was having a miscarriage and per protocol, when you have an emergency, because I was still, I was allowed to be on the land on weekends because it was within our mileage restriction. But if I had a medical event, I had to go to a military facility and with work being like the next day, I was like, I just have to leave the country early and I have to go to the hospital. So I drove two hours to military hospital because I think I'm having a miscarriage and they do the uh, vaginal ultrasound and they show me on the monitor that I'm still pregnant with twins. Yeah. And so we go from thinking we lost one baby to having, and the diagnosis was subdural hematoma and boom, it's two. And so all of our plan, cause I, I had avoided all my military appointments, right? I was like, I'm getting out. I'm not going to see an OB. I'm not going to family care. So I'm like 12, I'm not 20 weeks pregnant yet, but I'm, I'm far enough along and I'm looking pretty big already. And I internally knew it was twins. It just internally, I knew I felt two little babies swimming around in there. Steve and I had talked about it. Twins run in my family. So we were like, it's twins, but we just got validated. So we thought it was a medical emergency and then boom, baby blessing doubling down. Yeah. So then we're like, well, we could have one baby at home with no emergency medical coverage because, you know, we would get out and then not even be sure if we could be on state insurance yet and not know any of that. And I felt confident giving birth to a singleton, you know, completely free birth, whatever. But I was not confident yet to give birth to twins, free birth, no medical insurance, no medical coverage. So we signed on for the army for an extra year. (laughs) 
Yeah. That was probably really hard. It was so hard, especially for Steve, because he was ready to get out of the RV and be a family. <laughs> and he was, he was ready for me to be the mom, and he was ready for him to be the dad, you know? And it, it just hurt so much. He had literally just moved us into an apartment and we, we could legally break the lease because of the military contract. So we didn't have any penalty for that, but it, it still just, it was very emotional, like feeling for me to feel like I had to stay in because I needed emergency medical coverage for the babies post birth. So still at this point, I wasn't worried about the birth. I was worried about the potential emergency and if I needed a baby in the NICU or if I needed whatever. So that pregnancy, I got very serious and very, very spiritual. Um, I did a lot more reading. The major book that guided me through my twin pregnancy spiritually was Sacred Birthing by Suni Carl, and she introduced to me the concept that birthing a child, it's not us as the birthing, it's not our birth, it's their birth. And we need to consider things from the child's perspective of how they want to be birthed. And that was another dent to my ego, because I was like, no, I want the perfect birth. And birth is about me because two twins are going to come out of me. And I really had to grapple that concept of the birth is not about the mother. It's about the babies. So that was a big spiritual exercise for me for that birth. And yeah, I did a lot of meditating. I did a lot of bath rituals, just like praying with the candle and sea salt, magnesium baths, aromatherapy, um, listening to guided meditations, talking to the boys in utero, in the water. Hey, we got this. I trust that you want to be born head down. <laughs> and um, we found there are, at the time when I was pregnant, there were two licensed midwives in the state of Maryland that could not only do VBAC, but could do multiples. And so we took out a loan to pay, which again is another, it's another spiritual reach like, oh crap, we don't have the money now, but we'll have it later. So we took out a loan to pay for the midwife and she was great. Um, not a medwife, you know, very hands-off, very respecting of the mother's body and the mother's space and the mother's process. So I had absolutely no um, complaints about my medical care with that pregnancy um, or the delivery. I, with that, did you have any questions before I go into the labor? No, I'm so excited to hear about it. Yeah. So the night that I knew the twins were going to be born, it was still very early. Well, not very uh, for twins. It was pretty average. 35. They were 35 weeks. And I felt the babies drop like very, it's, it's just a unique, it's just a very unique sensation. And, um, they, they settled and I felt the baby's head get in position and I was like, Oh crap, it's going down. So I, I warned Steve and he thought I was crazy. And I just did a lot of stretching and dancing and singing that night, like tried to do a little food prep, whatever, and tried to just go to bed like normal. 
and woke up at 3 a.m. just like with my daughter except this time the water broke so I called the called the midwife and when you have twins they have a midwife for you and then a midwife for each baby and um, at this birth this birth team they had a student who was great um, as a doula so I had three midwives and one doula in attendance of this birth and yeah water broke at three same thing as before just kind of walked around and stretched and I couldn't go for an outside walk because they were born December 4th so it was the middle of winter so I was just like doing my best to labor in the living room and um, got in the water the midwives got there I got grunty started to get pushy and they were like okay can you make it down the steps um, because we had we had all agreed that laboring in the water was fine but I should birth um, somewhere where I, I or the babies were accessible so I did agree to birth um, outside of the water. Uh, went down to the living room and had uh, Steve just tell me he sat on the couch and I was leaning over the couch and he was rubbing my back and just fetal ejection reflex like baby A just, just shot right out. Poor guy. He landed on his head. I feel so bad for him. <laughs> it just happened so fast. I was like, hey, the baby's coming. And they were... <laughs> And afterwards, she was like, why didn't you catch him? And I was like, "That me catching my baby was not in the plan. <laughs> I just, I didn't have that desire yet. And um, so then within like 10, 15 minutes, baby B, fetal ejection reflex. But he was a little bigger. So he took a little, he didn't just boop right out. He um, was a little bit bigger. So he took a little longer to, and then another 10 or 15 minutes and the placenta was out and it was just, yeah, it was just beautiful and seamless and perfect and nobody messed with me and I birthed twins at home. Technically VBAC. Yeah. <laughs> How many hours was that? That was from 3 AM to 6:50, maybe. Yeah, so I am. I'm blessed with when my labors are natural, they're great. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. How was the breastfeeding journey with twins, and then that postpartum period with twins? It it was such a blur. The hormonal change of having twins compared to the hormonal change of a singleton is is literally double it it was wild um healing from the twins was pretty smooth i had a i had an awareness of yoni steaming so i took my time to yoni steam to heal i did not get any stitches with the twins they didn't even tell me how bad my tears were because i didn't care because i wasn't going to get stitched so i was like just tell me how to heal don't tell me how bad it is <laughs> so i did yoni steaming and kept my legs close together and ate um bone broth and manuka honey just really supportive healing foods and did a lot of journaling and I just tried to stay aware as best I could I tried to sleep as much as I could and it really was just surviving they were five and a half pounds and five pounds 11 ounces so they were really decent twin sizes 
um, and instead of military, huh? At 35 weeks. Yeah. This yeah. is incredible. I, I was very thankful for the support of my midwives. I went crazy on the nutrition that pregnancy because even though I had, I was really coming into my deep spiritual trust that my babies were growing. Uh, you best bet I was eating steak and bone broth and taking cod liver oil and taking collagen and oh, cell salts, bioplasma, cell salts. Those I got introduced to those in that pregnancy. Um, so yeah, I was really aware uh, that my body was building a baby, building twins because I was only nine months postpartum and I was breastfeeding. So I, yeah, I was breastfeeding up until the day that I bled. And then we had to, you know, I was, I was hybrid breastfeeding and bottle feeding my daughter because of the military. And then that day that I had the hematoma was her heart switch to bottle only because I knew my body was working, uh, not just double time, but it was working triple time. <laughs> so I, I busted my butt on my prenatal nutrition for the twin pregnancy. And then consequently wow. for his pregnancy. Yeah. Wow. So the baby in your arms is your free birth baby? Your last, yeah. most recent birth? Yeah. He's so feisty. This little emperor. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And, um, oh, we got smiling. Oh, he's smiling. Oh. He's so great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's my little buddy. Oh, my God. He's my little buddy. He's a, he's a cancer moon. So the, um, you know, the archetype of the mother is like his sense of security. It makes him feel secure in the world. And then I'm a cancer rising. <laughs> yeah. So he's my little, he's my little cancer buddy. But, um, the, and then, so the postpartum with the twins, we had a big hiccup at two months, which was halfway through my postpartum leave. I had my first severe, like hospitalizing, uh, panic attack. I was in so much pain. I thought I was dying. I couldn't breathe. Um, we had to call EMS to my house and they gave me whatever, whatever drug that made, it was a muscle relaxer so that I could just breathe again. Cause I knew it wasn't COVID. Um, cause I, I wasn't sick. It was, and it was so out of the blue. We were having a very normal night with the twins postpartum recovery. We had ordered in dinner. So neither of us had to cook. Um, and we had four children total, you know, my son who was, I don't, don't ask me about the ages because <laughs> they're all so small. <laughs> they're all so small at this point, but I definitely had four under four. So we had four babies under four years old. And, um, fortunately from my experience, I knew with breastfeeding to pump. So the babies did have a breast milk supply while I had to get transported EMS to the hospital and I didn't, I didn't know what was wrong. I did not know yet that it was a severe panic attack um, until I digested it later. But they ran all the blood work and, you know, they did all the scans. They could not find anything wrong. So that was kind of just the leftover diagnosis was, well, I guess you were worried about something. Yeah. Have you done the healing work on that? Do you want to share anything of any like spiritual truth that you gleaned from that panic attack you don't have to go into it I could just cut this out no you're fine I I honestly still don't know I think it was just a, a deep body response 
to realizing I was halfway through my maternity leave and I was still so disoriented and I was still so hormonally disrupted and I was really, I was so in love with my babies. I was so in love with my babies after that birth and just even thinking I would have to go to work to leave them soon. I think it, it really put my body in that response. Um, and that's, that's the best that I can figure now. Cause it's not whatever the panic attack was over. It wasn't conscious. It, it was very subconscious. It, it came on. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, like you're going to feel you want to die leaving your babies, your precious, beautiful angels. <laughs> like, of course. You're, yeah. a, you're a roaring mama bear now. Of course you'd feel like that. Yeah. And going back to work was was crazy, of course. And with the twins trying to gain weight. So another one of the COVID snafus, I don't know if um, you remember this. Do you remember the, the great formula shortage of 21 going into 22? That, um, that was when my babies were born. And I ordered, I had ordered a home formula kit. Um, I forget the website now, but it's the one recommended by Nourishing Traditions. So I ordered the home formula kit Nourishing Traditions had recommended because my babies weren't gaining weight just off my breast milk. They weren't losing weight, fortunately, but they did officially have failure to thrive. And I... At this point, you know, we knew we were getting out of the military. I had them in a private physician with a nurse practitioner. They were receiving private medical care versus me needing to put them through the military rigmarole um, and decline all the shots and and get all the lectures. I was like, skip that. I'm out of here soon. I'm going private with these boys. And someone, because of that, called CPS on my family. Yeah, and they called CPS on me for my twins um not gaining weight not gaining weight correctly and they did they because it was military they pursued a formal investigation which means i got investigated for neglecting my twins from the military and from the state of maryland and the what that means was I had, I just had to take the boys to so many doctor's appointments and they had to draw so much blood and my poor babies got so many heel pricks and we had appointments with a social worker and, um, that's how that went. And the state, of course, the state was like, wow, you're doing your best. You have food in your home. You are breastfeeding and you are doing homemade formula. The babies are gaining weight. We see no problem here, but the military, because I did not have them enrolled in military health care because we were getting out, um, they found, they founded the neglect charge. Yeah. Oh my God. And what about like, if you're not vaccinating your babies, like wh- what was that whole thing? I don't know. So fortunately there was one provider at the care station who agreed with me um, under medical terms that, okay, the babies are really small. They were premature. She, I I, fortunately, because I worked there knew the one provider that was not a vaccine pusher and she, yeah, she didn't make, 
me vaccinate my daughter or my son either. And she said the main reason we vaccinate children is if they're in a daycare or a school setting and your children are not in daycare or not in school. So we can't enforce any of that because they would not have been willing to give me an exemption based off of the fact that my son was vaccine injured or my daughter was vaccine injured. Um, and they probably would not have vaccine exempt the twins for being underweight or whatever. So that's the only reason we got away with that was that my husband was the stay at home dad. Yeah. Wow. So what did this feel like? It feels like it's like betrayal or like, what did that feel like with the military? Especially like as a mother. Yeah. Here's I knew it was someone I worked with that called CPS and as a medic in a healthcare setting, we worked with RNs, physicians, assistants, and doctors. And I'm, I'm very thankful that no one told me who it was. Cause I, I would have gone off on that person, <laughs> but they, um, they knew better than to tell me who it was, but it was definitely a physician that I had worked with and known personally and it caused a lot of paranoia. And I I didn't care about ruling out everybody. I just cared about ruling out the immediate people that I worked with versus someone that I would work with on a secondhand or thirdhand basis because the paranoia. I could not handle the paranoia of thinking that I had to be around this person on the daily that was judging me and that was literally calling the government on me for my parenting choices because I was in the military and I had to raise my children a certain way because I have to follow certain rules. So there is a lot of imposing on personal authority there. And especially in a healthcare setting where they're like, Oh, you're just a medic. You don't know anything. You're not a doctor. (laughs) Like get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. And here's a crazy, crazy truth that I discovered about myself on that journey as, as I was mentally and emotionally ruling people out. I discovered within myself that if it was a man that would have reported me, I would have been fine with it. I would have, because I, I work with so many men, it basically would have been expected. It'd be like, oh, you called CPS on me? Oh, you're a jerk. Like, whatever. I don't care. I, I didn't, I wouldn't have cared about their opinion of me at that point, but mentally when I was ruling people out and I thought about the women, it could have been, I was so deeply hurt and it led me to reflect on the fact that I have so much higher expectations of women than men. And I put so much more, um, care behind what a woman and a fellow mother would think about me and my parenting than a man who would have been like an army officer, probably without kids. Like I wouldn't have cared about their opinion, but if another woman is the one doing the judging, that is so hurtful. Because you respect women so much. Yeah. Yeah. When we respect someone, whether it's our friend our spouse, a coworker, when we put someone with that level of respect, what they think about us matters. Like typically. But yeah. if, if, if there's someone we don't respect, 
you know, thinks negatively about us, it doesn't really cause us suffering because we're, we don't respect them. So we don't care what they think about us, <laughs> but you, yeah. res- you respect the feminine so much. And this all goes back to like your childhood stuff. I re- plus I could get, a- I could get away with so much more attitude against men. Like one of the, one of the doctors triggered me one day I had to take the twins in with me to work. So I passed the babies. I, when I had to take them to work, I couldn't have a stroller. Um, cause I had too many kids for a stroller. I had a little red wagon. So I passed the wagon off to one of my coworkers who the kids knew and were familiar with. And he had to go to one of the doctor's offices. So he was rolling around this wagon full of kids that weren't his. And this doctor takes a look at them. And because of the CPS thing, I get so deeply offended. I, at the point he's holding my kids, I grab my babies from him. I walk into this doctor's office and he's following me because he knows I'm pissed off. And I slam the door shut in his face, which is very uncharacteristic of me because he was, he was one of my trusted coworkers. And I proceed to have the conversation behind closed door with that doctor. Did you call CPS on me? I was so paranoid. I was to the point of angry confrontation. And at that point when, and that doctor could not talk me down enough to get me to the point where I wasn't telling anybody else off that day. I just went down the line. Did you call CPS on me? (laughs) And I snapped and I snapped. And the one, here's the thing about dysregulation in the military. The one guy who was an old infantry officer got me to calm down. He looked at me and he said, Lisa, you're being a crazy bitch. (laughs) And it's just, I was like, you're right. (laughs) I'll I'll take it down a notch. And that's like the crazy thing about being dysregulated in the military is it is, it's the snake that eats itself. It keeps going. And someone had to get on my level to bring me me down. I would not calm down until someone flipped out on me. So that was another like silly moment. He was like, you're being a crazy bitch. You're like, I am a mama bear. That's what I am. <laughs> yeah. Let's hear your, your free birth story. Oh man, this one. Um, so of course, just getting, getting more spiritual in general and just so much more trusting in general. Um, this pregnancy was preceded by another chemical miscarriage. I, and this one, it was a very emotional miscarriage because it happened at the exact same time as I was, um, what's the word? Transitioning from active duty to, to being off. It was finally my time to leave the army And I had a miscarriage the same week that I was moving off the military base and moving onto the land. And I didn't know it was a miscarriage yet. I, um, oh, he just wants to play. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't know it was a miscarriage yet. I thought it was, I thought it was my period until it didn't stop. And then until I passed a fertilized, um, embryo and I, I didn't look up what stage of fertilization. But when I had that mass pass, I was like, Oh my gosh, so much is happening. I'm leaving the military. I'm leaving this horrendous experience of 
being judged and being condemned for being a mother and, and trying to mother naturally and holistically. I'm leaving it behind. And here I am losing a baby. And it, you know, again, it's, it's sad. Your body's going through all the hormonal changes. And at the same time, I was thankful that, um, I wasn't pregnant because I couldn't, I could not deal. And that was six months after the twins. I could not deal with supporting the twins and supporting my husband and supporting my older two. Yeah. Um, I could not have dealt with a pregnancy at that time, but the time when I lost the baby later that year was when I birthed Ember. So to me, the miscarriage was a preparation for his birth. It was like an inkling. I, I really do think it was an inkling from his soul. Like, Hey, I'm going to come through. And I think it prepared me be, having an off grid miscarriage prepared me and gave me the assurance to know that I could have an off grid birth. Um, so that, that miscarriage, it, it was sad, but it was a, it was a big lesson. It was, um, and I think it was a message from his soul that, Hey, get ready. I'm coming and you can do this. So that's how it started. <laughs> and so we, um, and we've just always trusted that our babies will come through when they're meant to come through and that we won't get pregnant if we're not supposed to get pregnant. Um, so we got pregnant with him and the pregnancy picked out a midwife, knew exactly the midwife I wanted. And again, we were like, Oh crap, how are we going to afford it? We were um, doing appointments with her and we figure out that we can barter. So yeah, we worked out a barter with the midwife for the birth. And so I'm really excited about that because that's real life. That's going back to old school economy that's sustainable country living. And, um, it was great. She was very hands-off. She's also very spiritually aware. I had such a great midwife. She was very spiritually respectful and she was really well-versed in herbalism and homeopathy. And she really respected all my uh, nutrition choices with him. And the pregnancy was just very smooth. It I was so in touch with nature, gardening, homesteading, chasing my other kids around. Uh, it went very uneventfully and I just felt so connected to nature and the cycles and, and our land and our, and our home. Um, we did have some scares. Our water collection system had failed a couple times. We thought we weren't going to have enough water. Um, we weren't sure we were going to have enough firewood. We wanted to get a log splitter and that fell through and just other other stuff like that. We had a big snafu with our solar system. So it's like all the things, but they, they were all just tests that caused us to level up and improve. So it was scary, but we got through it. And he was also very late, which I don't believe in conventional pregnancy dating anymore. Um, especially if you know, when you're conceived your child, you're not going to go based off your FDLMP. So we knew when we conceived him, and he came at pretty much at 48 weeks, but by conventional dating, he came at 41 plus. <laughs> so, 
So it, it took Did you say so... 48? I don't know. Did I? He came at 40. How many weeks? Convention or based off of conception, he came at four, four zero, 40 weeks. I thought you said 48. Some, some women do that. <laughs> some women trust their babies that deeply. So, yeah. But by conventional dating, he came at 42. And I, yeah. So I, I trusted him. I trusted that he wanted his birth to go smoothly and to go well and that he was in a good position and that it was going to be uneventful. Um, but it still took so much trust to go past that 40 week, um, FDLMP window because of the brainwashing of the system. Like something's wrong with your baby. If you go past this date and I just, two extra weeks just had to ignore that and regulate myself and say, he's fine. I'm fine. We're going to have a good birth. Um, we did, we did all the things to like try and naturally induce just, just as a, as an invitation, like, Hey, I'm going to take this cotton route. And if you feel like coming, you come on buddy. <laughs> like, and none of the natural, none of the natural induction methods worked because he wasn't ready yet. And he was my first night baby. We went for one of our last grocery shopping trips. Actually, we went to pick my older two children up from my aunt who agreed to watch them because we were hoping the natural induction would work. <laughs> so she had the kids and we went to pick them up. And as soon as we got home, my water broke. And um, just like with my other labors, everything just went very quickly. It went very smoothly. I got in the tub when I felt like it was time to push. And I had a feeling he was going to be born in the water. And I was trusting of that. Um, called the midwife and she had a birth assistant. The midwife was stuck in traffic, so she didn't make it in time for the birth. And the the birth assistant literally pulled in our driveway as he was born. But right before that, cause he was a big baby, he was 10 pounds after his first bowel movement. Um, I did to feel there was a moment in labor when Steve, cause I was leaning over the edge of the tub. So he picked me up and it settled the bait. It settled him just that little bit further down like he needed to be. And with, with Steve picking me up and just like letting my body align, Ember fell perfectly into place. And I was like, oh, there he is. And so I started massaging myself because I felt a lot of resistance on his end. Um, and the first thing I felt was his ear. So I don't know what he was doing. His little head was like this. <laughs> and then... You know, it was just like head coming out sideways. Okay, let me keep massaging. Okay, there's the shoulder. Like, let's just, I just kept massaging until he slid out. And that was just how he wanted, that's just how he wanted to come out. And I really, I had to get so much more involved with him, with, with his birth than I ever thought. Because remember with my twins, I was that woman that was like, no, I'm not going to catch my own baby. And here I am helping him out. Like, like, here's the opening, son. So that was a huge, 
um, shift for me. And that's, I just trusted my body and I trusted my baby. And that's why I think it really was like the crone of my birth, like the wisest of my births because I trusted it. And I just went off of instinct. That's so beautiful because you know your body, you can feel your body and you've birthed a few times. You just instinctually moved with your own body, with your baby. Like that's the way it's supposed to be. (sighs) Wow. So then your, your hired help arrived like right after he emerged. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he came out, I had a dream. He was going to come out blue. So then when he did come out blue, I knew not to worry because he was very like discolored. And I had a dream that was warning me and mentally preparing me. So then when the birth assistant walks in and she sees me like rubbing this blue baby's back, I'm like, he's okay. (laughs) Cause I, I would not have wanted anybody to come in and see the baby and have that response of like, Oh my gosh, he's suffocating or whatever. I was warned or not warned, but I was, given that knowledge ahead of time that, Hey, he's going to be blue and he's going to be fine. (laughs) So I just rubbed his little back and swept out his little mouth and he was breathing and he was pretty perfect. He latched immediately. So yeah. (laughs) Those were some wild stories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Let's end with, What about you talking about like your current season or like what you've learned in your mother journey? I know it's really hard because it's, you know, a five, six year progression from maiden to mother, but yeah, what, like what comes through when I just say this for you? Cyclical living that there is a time, there's a time for everything. And sometimes you'll trust and you'll feel great about trusting And sometimes you'll be like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. All the kids are screaming at me and and you'll just have to surrender. And it's, there just is a lesson, every, everything for a season. (laughs) Sometimes you're going to know what to do and sometimes you won't. And you just have to trust that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And the biggest thing I'm thankful for in my mother mothering journey is being able to live with the seasons. Um, We get to live with our circadian rhythms. We don't have to get our children up for school. We don't have to um, do anything. We really just live our days based off of the, the weather and nature. So yeah, cyclical living. And that goes for even modern things like screen time. You know, your kids are gonna get more screen time in the winter than they are in the summer. I'm trying to think of another like conventional example, eating kids will eat more at growth spurts and then sometimes they won't eat anything. And my kids have these things like thirsty growth spurts. Well, they, they won't want to eat, but they'll just drink so much water and drink so much milk. And you just have to trust that's your child and that's what their body wants. And it's trusting your child too. Cause I know a lot of us weren't raised that way of like, Oh, I guess they call it child-led parenting now is just following your children's cues for absolutely everything. And that's what, that's what we're trying to do. (laughs) 
And it takes so much trust and surrender of everything we've ever been taught.